0: Well, a little over a year and a half ago, uh, I graduated from Biola University with a, a master's in Christian apologetics. Now, if you have no idea what I just said, don't worry, that just means you're normal because most people have no idea what apologetics was. Um, I was in Orlando a couple years ago at a, um, uh, an art fair, and I was speaking with the uh, producer there, and uh, he was asking me what I was getting my master's in, and I said, well, in, in Christian apologetics— And he said, I didn't realize you could get a master's in apologizing. Um, And I said, no, 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 it actually, yeah, it comes from the same word. It's the Greek word apologia, but it it means to give a a logical defense of something. So Christian apologetics is the rational defense of the truth claims of Christianity. And then he kind of looked back at me with a bit of a twinkle in his eye, and he said, okay. So I guess then you're apologizing for all the other Christians then. And uh, he's a really nice guy. I know it was just a a subtle job, but but the point was taken. Um, uh, Oftentimes, Christians and Christianity is presented in this caricature of people who have just been following this myth that they grew up with. They've just kind of swallowed what their parents, told them to believe when they were children. And yes, everybody else knows that we've progressed beyond this now, so that's cute if you want to believe that but uh, we'll just go ahead and, and be reasonable, right? Um, around the same time, uh, a friend of mine started a group where he was meeting with prominent atheists in the area. He just wanted to start a discussion with them. And so I came to a couple of those meetings, and at one point one of the guys said to me, you know, that's, that's all well and good if, if you want to believe that. I just, I just can't believe in fairy tales. That's just the whole thing. Um, and it highlights one of the biggest lies of our time. It's the false dichotomy that you have to choose either faith or reason. A false dichotomy. That is, that is false. That is not true. These are not separate things. There's faith over here or there's reason over here. And that is one of the tactics of the enemy in our time is to shame Christians into thinking, well, I guess that's kind of true, but science says all this stuff, so I don't really know what to do, so I guess I'll just huddle in a chapel on Sunday, but then just kind of keep quiet the rest of the week. That's a lie. The truth is, most many of the greatest thinkers of history, the trailblazers of the sciences, were Christians. And it's because they knew they didn't need to decide between faith or reason. They knew that the fact that we could discover had to be grounded in reason. There was such people as Nicholas Copernicus, who is the one who discovered that we're actually going around the sun and not vice versa? Johannes Kepler, he invented Kepler's laws of planetary motion, a Christian. Blaise Pascal, Pascal is amazing, a brilliant guy, came up with Pascal's laws in physics, Pascal's theorem in math, and Pascal's wager. And there's Gregor Mendel, he's considered the father of modern genetics, a Christian. And then Isaac Newton, who is considered by many to be maybe the greatest scientific mind of all time. A few of the things he did, he laid the foundation for classical mechanics, which many sciences are built upon. He developed calculus on his free time with a guy named Leibniz. He also discovered the laws of motion and universal gravitation. Oh yeah, and when he was bored, he built a telescope which figured out how color works. This is Isaac Newton. Newton, when he was discovering the cosmos, this was one of the quotes he had, which shows what drove him to discover. He said this, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, and absolutely perfect. Historically, the great thinkers of history never saw faith as opposed to reason. They knew that our reason had to be grounded in a reality of a transcendent, intelligent being. And for me, a big part of the reason that I got my master's in apologetics was because as I was starting to kind of wake up more and more from my spiritual slumber, I would see many uh, questions or arguments lodged against Christianity, but I didn't hear a lot of answers, or I didn't hear a, a lot of Christians feeling confident to engage with these questions that we have. And this seemed ridiculous to me, because if Christianity is true, and Christianity is true, we shouldn't fear any questions at all. We should have a desire to learn so that we could engage with people that had good questions. But most of us, many of us, are are unaware of the robust intellectual heritage of our faith. So to that end, I'm very excited about our text today because in it, Paul begins with a call to Christians not to flee from engagement, but to actually to jump in and engage your mind in debates, in arguments, in challenging opinions that people bring against the knowledge of God. This is a good thing to do. So I have three main points for us this morning. The first one we'll spend the lion's share of our time on, and then we'll hit two more at the back end there. But the first one is this. From our text, we see Paul is arguing for the sake of obedience to Christ. He writes this. We destroy arguments... And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So to set the stage a bit, we know that Paul has been addressing a specific issue here in Corinth. If you've been with us from the beginning of the year, we've been through this whole book and will take us through most of the year And Paul has had to address false teachers who have come in after he left and have started undermining what he taught, started undermining the gospel that he proclaimed. In the next chapter, he'll actually say they're proclaiming a different Jesus. Very challenging words. So we need to realize here that Paul's aim is not to destroy people. He wants to destroy arguments. Anything that is keeping people from the reality of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins that God has offered all of us through his Son. Some of you were here last month when my Grandpa George joined us, and this is a picture that my Grandpa sent me uh, a couple months ago. He asked me to uh, restore it for him in Photoshop. I know it's a bit hard to see, but it's actually a picture of, of his Grandpa. Um, you can see him at the top there, standing like a, a cool guy. I'll use that word there. Um... And so that'd be my great, great, great grandpa, Charles. And Charles helped build the railroad and lay down track in Pennsylvania. And the railroad was probably one of the greatest innovations that allowed the US to industrialize. The simple reason was because through the railroad, you could transport huge amounts of raw material, which allowed for progress to proceed very rapidly. But as many of you will know, When you build a railroad, oftentimes you'll have to take dynamite and blast through different mountain passes or any other obstacle that stands in the way of the progress of the railroad. Well, in the same way, Paul here is talking about destroying arguments or opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. Paul is in the business of blasting anything that will keep the engine of the gospel from surging forward in Corinth and throughout all the world. He makes this point earlier in this uh, letter, writing this. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. Paul is all about removing obstacles from the gospel surging forward. In this context, he was talking about being above reproach financially speaking in the church. And in our text today, he's talking about destroying arguments that false teachers had brought against the church. Paul is very jealous for the Corinthians to have a confidence in the gospel. It's the hope of life. It is the truth. And our eternity hinges on it. So it is right that this pastor cares deeply that the Corinthians grasp the truth of the gospel. Now I realize, depending on how you are wired, this verse is going is to strike you a bit differently. So I want this to come as both a challenge to some and an encouragement to some. For those of you who have never really struggled with doubt or struggled with faith, it's just always come easy to you. It's a gift. You have the gift of faith. Um, oftentimes, though, uh, we, we fear engaging with those who have questions because sometimes we haven't really thought through some of the things because by the grace of God, we just have, have faith. Well, I want this to come as a challenge to you, a loving challenge to you to, to desire to be able to engage with some of your friends who have good questions. Uh, Christ is honored when we can give reasons for the hope that we have. I get that from 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes this In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christ is honored when we're able to, to give reasons for the hope that we have. If Jesus Christ is our treasure and we are hinging our eternity on him, surely we'll want to be able to discuss him with friends. Now, that does not mean we have to have every answer to every question that anybody has. Not at all. And the truth is, some people don't, don't deserve an answer. I remember in that same meeting with those atheists, there was this one guy, and he would ask me a question, and before I could even remotely finish what I was saying, he would just lodge another one in lodge another one, and there becomes a the point where, where I'm the fool for continuing to engage, because he clearly has no desire at all to actually hear what I want to say. So I'm not saying you have to have every answer to every question, but do you desire to be able to engage with those that you love? And if they have a a good question, to do some research and to give them a reason for the hope that you have. For some others, um, like myself, faith didn't come naturally. And for you, I, I want this text to be an encouragement to you. Oftentimes, if we have to wrestle through certain things, we kind of feel like we're spiritually weaker because we couldn't just believe up front. Well, as I've said before, and as I will continue to say, you need to know that Christianity never asks you to have a blind faith. Never asks you to have a blind faith. Consider the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, so Luke is into precision. And he starts his Gospel this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is the guy he's writing to. And then catch this. That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is the reason Luke wrote his gospel. Was so that this guy would have certainty concerning the things of Jesus. It's okay to want to know. Uh, We see this as well in John. This is the last two chapters of John. Don't worry, I'm not reading the entire last two chapters of John. I know you guys get a little nervous when I get up here that I'm just going to keep reading. But not here. John 20, he says this. This is right after the encounter with Doubting Thomas. John, the writer, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then John ends his gospel like this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John walked with Jesus. John loved Jesus. And John wants us to believe in Jesus. This is why he wrote his book as well. I was there. I can bear witness to this, so listen to what I'm saying. Test it for yourself. This is the truth. So wherever you land this morning, I want you to be challenged and and encouraged. Christianity never asks you to check your mind at the door. John wasn't just saying, just pray a prayer and hope for a good feeling. That's not what this is at all. This is the truth that can be verified by history. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in his first epistle. He said, Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And since Paul starts off with these strong words of destroying arguments in this context, I thought it might do us well to maybe just quickly go through a couple arguments that are lodged against Christianity in our day. And and this is not to be just gotcha things that you can present to people who have questions. But I'm hoping to kind of whet your appetite to um, maybe dive in more if you have questions. We have resources in the back. I'm a resource for you as well. I'd love to talk about this stuff whenever you want. I did with two hours this week for a friend of mine, and it was sweet. So uh, I'm going to go into lecture mode for a minute here. Bear with me. But we'll look at three quick arguments. I'll just give a thought or two, and we'll move on to the text. Argument one, uh, it's it's, it's an argument lodged against the Bible itself, which is a good place to go if you want to undermine Christianity you'd be stated like this. The Bible can't be trusted because it has been retranslated so many times. Have you heard this? It's oftentimes kind of um, compared to the game of telephone that you would play when you were a kid. You know, there's like 25 kids in a classroom. The teacher would whisper one thing into the first kid's ear, then it would go to the next person to the next person, and by the end, when the last child says what they uh, heard, it was light years from what the original saying was. And so many people will say, the Bible is like that. Now, I can understand if you've never studied this, um, thinking of that, but what is incredible to me is when best-selling authors say stupid things like this. I was watching a debate between uh, one of my lecturing professors named Greg Kokel, and he was talking to a guy named Deepak Chopra. He's kind of a, a leading New Age philosophy guy. He sold millions of books and uh, Chopra said this to Kokel. He said, well, isn't it true that your King James Bible is just the 17th iteration from the original? And Greg Kokel said, no, that's not true at all. That's not how translation works at all. Now, Chopra had written a book on Jesus. And yet he doesn't know the most basic fact about translation is whenever you do a new translation, you always go back to the oldest possible source. So this is the ESV that we use. What didn't happen is they said, well, we want a new translation, so we'll get the NIV, and then we'll just read that, and then just say what we think that says, and then have this. Not at all. That's not how translation works at all. And actually, the conversation gets funnier. Uh, Kokel pretty much goes into New Testament history mode and gives them all these arguments for how translation works. And (laughs) Kokel says at one point, well... I read an article in Newsweek last week that disagrees with what you just said. (laughs) This is his source, a guy who wrote a book on Jesus saying, well, Newsweek disagreed, so I guess that settles it. Um, So I just want to do a very quick primer on how we test the reliability of, of ancient manuscripts. What you do is you say, what is the earliest copy we have from when it was originally written? And then how many copies of this do we have? So that we can test the veracity of it. So here's a chart that compares six ancient documents that are considered historical and compares it to the New Testament. I'll just point out three. There's Plato. You may have heard of him. He wrote around 400 B.C. The earliest copy that we have of Plato is 900 A.D., 1,200 years between the original and what we now have, and we have seven copies of Plato. Aristotle. Now the popular guy, he wrote around 350 B.C. The earliest copy we have of him is 1100 A.D. 1400 years between when it was written and what we have. And we have 49 copies of Aristotle. There's the Iliad, which is probably the most uh, popular ancient document. It was written in 900 B.C. The copy we have, he does much better, it's 400 B.C. 500 years between the original and what we have and there's actually 643 copies of the Iliad which is quite impressive it's the second most verified testament and then we come to the New Testament itself it was written in the 1st century AD the earliest copies we have are from the 2nd century AD and they'd recently discovered another one which they think might be from the 1st century less than 100 years from when it was written to what we have and there's 5600 copies And they agree 99.5%, and any disagreements are like, doesn't affect major doctrine. It's like Jesus Christ as opposed to Christ Jesus, this type of thing. The New Testament is light years ahead of anything else as far as reliability. So you throw out the New Testament, you throw out all the history that the world has. It's quite incredible. Next argument goes something like this. Truth is relative, therefore you shouldn't push your beliefs Unto others, This is a, a very prevalent thing that's said these days. I've had this conversation several times. It typically goes, I don't think that anyone should push their beliefs on anyone else. To which I'll reply, Is that your belief? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, then why are you pushing that belief onto me? And, and, and the argument's not, it's really not meant to be a, a snarky comeback. It's supposed to expose the fallacy that nobody lives like this. Nobody actually lives like there is no real truth and what you believe is what you believe and and what I believe is what I believe. The moment somebody steals your computer, you'll be into objective truth. And you'll want the judge to push his beliefs on that person. It falls apart immediately in real life. Nobody believes that what ISIS does is okay because they're in a different culture, in a different context, and so we can't push our beliefs on them. Everybody says beheadings are always wrong and therefore we should push our beliefs on to them. But the bigger point is this. There is an objective truth that remains true whether you believe it or not. Whether I believe it or not. Truth is truth. I could say that this podium is not here. It doesn't change the reality that, that, that it's here. Truth is truth. And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene and drops a bomb on all of this relativism. In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was no relativist. He didn't have an identity crisis. We might have an identity crisis about Jesus. He was very confident in who he was. He knew he was the Savior of all the world. So we'll come to one more argument, and it often goes like this. I can't believe in God because there is so much evil and injustice in the world. I remember staying up to two or three in the morning with a buddy of mine who was raised in the church, and he now identifies as an atheist, and and he made this point a couple times, and I, I totally get it. And I just want to say one thing to the point. This argument doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. This actually is proof that God has to exist. This is proof that God has to exist. Lewis struggled with uh, this when he was an atheist. C.S. Lewis was an atheist until he was about 31. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he highlights this tension that he found himself in when he was revolting against injustice. He writes, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just And unjust, A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Now, we can ask the question, and it is the biggest question, why does God allow evil? Sure, that's a great question, and the Bible asks it itself. Job asked it himself and many others. We can talk about that, but this doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. It proves that we know he has to exist. There is right and wrong. There is good and evil, and we all know it. So yes, it's good to know the arguments and the questions that people have so that we can remove obstacles from them experiencing God's grace. We can think of, of questions as, as proverbial dams in people's minds, and Paul would encourage us to try to break those dams so that the grace can flow through and they see can see Jesus Christ in all of his objective truth glory I remember going through uh, my program and a, a few people said to me now be careful because you know you can't argue anybody into the kingdom and th- and that's true and I understand their concern but the reality is I can't do anything to get anybody into the kingdom God is the one who saves in his grace but he uses reason and conversation to sometimes pave the way for the Holy Spirit to come. It's Paul who draws a straight line in the text from destroying arguments and thoughts uh, and opinions raised against God to taking thoughts captive to obey Christ. I didn't write the book. This is what it says. So yes, uh, we should desire to be able to engage, not to have every answer or to have gotcha answers to people, but just so that we can give reasons for our hope. Number two, from our text, we see that argue, um, Paul is arguing for the sake of upbuilding the church. He's arguing for the sake of upbuilding the church. We see this in verses seven and eight. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. What he's trying to do here is he's trying to bring some of the Corinthians back to their senses. He's trying to throw proverbial water, saying, Wake up, you know us. These people have come in and claimed to preach Christ, you know me. Look at what is before your eyes. I have loved you and cared for you. You know that I am from Christ. And as is often the case when Paul has to say hard words, he quickly follows it up with words of comfort. You see this poor guy in this tension as he's writing to this church. Words of comfort explaining to them that he desires to build them up. He doesn't want to be frightening them with his letters. He wants to to build them up. And sometimes in relationships, hard words are necessary, which is a real challenge In our times. Because we live in a time where often disagreement is associated with with hatred. Uh, The word tolerance used to mean that you could disagree but still peacefully coexist and even, yes, love somebody that you disagreed with. Tolerance now means if you don't celebrate everything everybody says, you are hateful. Because political correctness has become the highest virtue in many spheres. But in my journey, in my mid 20s, I am so thankful that God brought along my path teachers who spoke hard words. At first, I was very put off by them. I thought, who are these people? Because I had been so steeped in our culture. But finally, some of those words started to break in. And I realized that sometimes hard words soften people. I needed hard words. I needed someone to look me in the eye and say, Dude, it's time to get your stuff together, man. You're In your mid-twenties, you're a Christian man. Start acting like it. And I thank God for teachers who are willing to speak hard words to me. I love how Proverbs 27.6 puts it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes in friendships... There are hard words that will feel like a wound, but it's not. It's meant for our upbuilding. I love Oscar Wilde. He's one of my favorite authors, and he, he put it this way, uh, real friends stab you in the front. That's really helpful. <laughs> real friends stab you in the front. If you don't read Oscar Wilde, change that. You should. He's brilliant and amazing. But friends, we, we must realize Paul's aim in everything is the purity of the gospel for the salvation of the church. Paul loves the gospel. He loves his people. He wants to upbuild them. He doesn't want to come with his apostolic swagger to hurt them. He wants them to see clearly that Jesus forgives sin, that there is salvation in the name of Jesus. So we've seen that Paul is arguing for the sake of obedience. He's arguing for the sake of upbuilding the church. And finally, and lastly, Paul is arguing for the sake of integrity of character for the sake of integrity of character. He says in verses 9 through 11, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. And here we get a glimpse into the personal attacks that were being lodged uh, against Paul. As we've said before, in Corinth, a high stock was put on the art of oratory, or rhetoric. So this is why they are uh, giving him an ad hominem uh, argument. They are downplaying Paul's presence, because surely if you don't have a presence, then what you're saying is worthless. And Paul's saying that's not true. That's not true at all. That's not how the gospel works at all. I am the same Paul who has preached the same gospel, and I have never had any pretension of it being on the merits of my oratory or on the merits of my stature. In fact, quite the opposite. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ And him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is clear here, and this should be very comforting for us, friends. Yes, Scripture calls us to engage, to give reasons for the hope that we have. Once again, Paul started off the text by saying, I destroy arguments that come against the gospel. But he tells us that ultimately, nobody is saved by our wisdom. Someone's salvation is not dependent on your answer to a question. Yes, you should be faithful and, and love them, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And God's purposes. We'll see their completion. Jesus Christ said, My sheep know my voice, and they must come to me. Salvation is a work of total grace by God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, which is applied by the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. So be of good courage, friends. Even though Paul is bold and even frightened them with their letters, he knew that their salvation did not hinge on his wisdom and nor does it on yours or mine. We shouldn't seek out debate or arguments for the sake of sport, only to be helpful and to pave the way for the Holy Spirit to come and bring dead men to life. You can't bring a dead person to life. That's the work of God through Jesus Christ. But we need to ask ourselves, friends, do you have a humble boldness for Christ? Do you have a humble boldness for Christ in your relationships at work? Are you willing to disagree with people in love? Or do we only proclaim Christ in the comfort of our chapel? Do you actually have a desire for people's minds to be changed to obey Christ? Or have we been so enculturated that we just don't want to ruffle any feathers and we just want to be politically correct? Because that's not the call of the gospel at all. It's never been politically correct. The gospel says that we're all sinners. That's going to be offensive. It's offensive to me. But it's the truth. And the good news is God has sent us Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. This is the gospel, friends. And so we should have a boldness for Christ. Not to puff our ego up, but to lift up Christ. What else do we have? It's not for nothing that Jesus said, woe to you if all men speak well of you. That's a hard word, especially in politically correct times. He's saying there should be times where no matter how kind and gentle you are, the gospel is going to cut. So do we have a humble boldness for Christ? One of the greatest joys of my life came uh, through disagreements. A couple years ago, there was this um, divine appointment at a pool party, one I almost didn't go to. And uh, a guy that I kind of knew in passing, his name was Christian, um, he was there with his, his um, girlfriend at the time and their twins. And uh, we had played music together for a while, um, not in the same band, but our bands had played together. He's a, kind of a well-known musician in Orlando. And we were having this great conversation. And he said, you know, with having these kids now, I'm just trying to get right with the man upstairs, and I'm um, feeling more of a weightiness because I have their little lives to care about. And he said, you know, I've just realized... All paths really lead to God, you know? That's just one of the things I've kind of come to. I've been going to this church, and that's kind of what I've come away with. And uh, I just told him, I I wasn't harsh, but I said, man, i got to tell you, I completely disagree with you. I completely disagree with you, brother. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, man. And he was at first taken aback that I didn't agree with them, but he was intrigued. And uh, a couple days later, we met at Starbucks. He said, I will hear you again about this, which was the response Paul got sometimes, we'll hear you again about this. So he heard me again about this, and in that Starbucks, something happened, and me and another buddy were there. Um, You guys may have met him. Uh, Mike, he played with me once here, and we presented the gospel to Christian. He was just open to it, and we laid our hands on him, and to this day, I I actually spoke to him yesterday to make sure I was getting the facts straight. To this day, he, he calls that the moment of his salvation. He said in that Starbucks, he felt something, a weight literally come off him. And he is now um, in ministry, and he's looking for churches to be the worship pastor. at. It's an inc- amazing thing. And it was just not, I'm not the greatest evangelist in the world, that is for sure. But um, I felt a prompting of the Spirit. I've got to tell this dude the truth, because I, I love him. And then uh, the Spirit takes it from there. Salvation belongs to the Lord, friend. But we're called to be uh, bold for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful That you are Lord. That is a great comfort to our souls. Because oftentimes I live like I'm Lord, and that makes me very unsettled. There is no security in Brooks as Lord. There is only security in Christ as Lord. And you are Lord, and you are good, and you are sovereign, and you overcome our rebellion by your grace. This is the truth. But Lord, I I pray that you would move in our church, that we would be encouraged and challenged to uh, be able to give reasons for the hope that we have uh, out of love for our friends. We love to talk about the things that we love. May that be so with the greatest treasure in the world. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would even come now and that you would stir our hearts that your kindness would lead us towards repentance. And if there's those here who need to receive your grace for the first time, that your spirit would come and bring salvations through Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're so thankful that your love is a love that pursues because we need pursuing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But won't you come and seal our hearts this morning? In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord.